This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. The Big Interview with Offscript. Right then, let's get to this because I've been in conversation with a gentleman by the name of Lee Sansom. He is an ex-Royal Military Policeman. He's an ex-Martial Arts Champion, private military contractor and an expert in close protection. Now, this is where it gets, you would say, I guess, a little juicy. He has worked with Hollywood stars, including the likes of Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, Pelly and Sylvester Stallone. One heck of a roll call. He's worked as well for the controversial building Billionaire Mohammed Al Fayed, and it was during his association with Mohammed Al Fayed, of course, former owner of Fulham Football Club, owner of Harrods over in London, that Lee would go on to protect the most famous woman in the world, Princess Diana, with whom he actually formed a close bond. And we're going to get Lee's first hand take on what Princess Diana was like and his kind of role within her protection. But before a life in the spotlight, he actually opened up to me about the fact that as a young boy during his adolescence years, he was a hardcore football hooligan. He supported Manchester City. He would then later in life go on to support Burnley. He was a turncoat. Massively. In that regard. And... Well, obviously, you hear football hooliganism, you think to yourself, well, that's, that's mental. It's harking back to this, the 80s, the 70s, the, the days before almost the advent of the Euro Premier 2004. League. 2004. Well, there is that as well. But this is going back to a kind of a bygone era. And I wanted, before getting into his life in the military and, and what he would go on to achieve in his career, I actually wanted to go back and try and understand his, his adolescent years. And I want to delve into the psychology of being a football hooligan. What was it about that life that attracted Lee to it? It's interesting, this, and the psychology of violence um, is something I'm really big into. I've studied it for years, and, and, and these things in my early years have helped me uh, design training and program to keep programs to keep people safe, because I understand how, how, how the, the mind of somebody who would inflict harm on others, because I used to do it, and so I've got an insight into it. So it's it's... There's various people who will who will attack other people, but in the foot in the sense of football, it was arranged. It was all pre-arranged. It was it was a, an acknowledgement that certain groups in the football world wanted to fight, and and although you know I would never fight with normal fans, it was always you know we knew who we were going to fight against, and I think it was a massive adrenaline rush that, that once you start getting it, you want it all the time and. And that, in those days, on a Friday night and a Saturday night, if we didn't come back from the pub without having a fight, it wasn't a good night. It was, you know, there was something missing. And then obviously, obviously Saturdays we used to go and do the same. And it was just, uh, it's just a crazy psychological thing that all humans have in them, searching for this, for this adrenaline, for this this feeling that you can't get anywhere else. And once you feel it. When you come to it, you want more and more. It's addictive. Now, I've got to be honest with you. On a Saturday night, there was no appetite for me to have a fight growing up. Even on a Friday night, there never has been. <laughs> there never will be. More of a kebab man, aren't it you? It was a kebab man. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. You know? It was just about I get what he says, though. I'm sure Sonal does as well. You know, the adrenaline of a fight... <laughs> <laughs> I see where you're going with this, Robert. No, but it, it's true, OK? It, it is true in that respect. Was I addicted to it? Evidently not, since I never did it again. But, you know, there, 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 there is some, something to be said for that, that buzz. Mm. It's like any kind of addiction to anything. Mm. Um, you know, once you develop a taste for it, if it's violence, then, you know, you need, you need your fix. And he was getting it. 
every single weekend this fella would go and watch football he'd be part of the organised kind of hooligans of his set football team and they would have these running battles watch the game of football back to the pub and then more fights to come I had to find out from Lee what was the catalyst for his dad in actual fact to eventually say enough is enough and get Lee and his brother who had also fallen into that way of life off the streets he'd heard he's a gentleman my dad a real gentle guy but his dad, dad was a, a real top boxer and uh, and then he used to um, he used to go and sort people out in Manchester and get paid for it. So he was a tough guy. But my dad was opposite. He was a painter. He was a gentleman. And I think you know he'd heard stories in the pub and uh, and this that and the other about his boys. And I think he was getting a bit concerned. So when the karate instructor Paul, he was called, um, he just lived across the road from us, suggested to my dad. My dad suggested it to, to us. Uh, and I'd tried karate before when I was about four, 13, 14 uh, because I wanted to stop this bullying and on my first night one of the instructors broke my ribs can you imagine that, a 13 year old kid and, and put me off for life and then, well I thought it did and I went back and I started training and then I quickly got the bug and I think what happened then is I'd been out one Saturday night and I got into a fight with uh, with someone and uh it's a not a long story, but but what happened was one of my instructors found out and he said, "Look, Lee, you've got two options here. If you carry on doing what you're doing, we're going to take your karate license off you, and you'll never be able to to compete in the sport again." And that was enough for me to flip it to go right. No, I don't want that anymore. I want this, and and it just that changed my whole life. So fortunately, he fell in love with a passion. That was karate. That would then lead him on a path into Mai Tai, into Taekwondo, and eventually into a life in the military, rising through the ranks quickly. He was then deployed in various uh, hostile environments all around the world. Now, he spent a decade in the military. said he was sceptical of some aspects, but he said, and I quote here, 99% of the time he absolutely loved it. And then he moved, as so many people do, into personal security. So how did that come about? Well, I left the military and I, was, and I was determined not to go into personal security and I wanted to work for myself. And so I tried a couple of things and it just didn't work. I find it really hard to um, to go back into civilian life. And then Mr. Mohammed Al-Fayed uh, had, a, has a, had a big security team and the guy um, who'd just taken over as head of security, I knew him from the military, he's a, a former officer. And... Uh, somebody t told me that they were hiring so I, I gave them a call and I spoke to Paul and he said look come down to London and I went down to London we had a chat and he offered me the job there and then wow and that's you and immediately yeah so that's you now part of the security detail for and again for any of my listeners who aren't aware of who Mohammed Al-Fayed is of course famous businessman very successful businessman man who owned a Harrods he owned Fulham Football Club for a spell as well and immediately you were part of his inner sanctum Yes, yeah. I mean, there was a process to it, Chris, and you know, uh, you know, you start as the new boy, and and it was a big team, by the way. And you're, you know, you go through a process of learning, you know, how the family live, learning their needs, uh, their roots, uh, learning all the the hard physical security systems, and then slowly you get to meet the family, very slowly, in a measured way, so we can establish if they like they liked yeah. me because if they didn't like me obviously I, I, I would have to leave and then over a period of time I, I looked after uh, the children the wife 
I looked, I was on, um, I looked after him. So I, I looked after all the family at certain times. And, and even now I speak to the family with fond memories and, you know, we talk and, you know, because uh, his, his children were about the same age as, as, uh, as my children. So I really, I really got them, you know, and mm. um, it, it was nice that Omar, um, his son, he sent me a lovely message a while ago saying, Lee, I'd just like to thank you for, for changing my life in my early years. It was a, you know, honour to, to meet you. And I was like, wow, how cool is that? Now, of course, Mohammed Al-Fayed has a, a number of children, one of those children being Dori, Dori mm-hmm. Al-Fayed, uh, of course, who famously dated uh, Diana, Princess of Wales. And I wanted to get Lee's take on that experience and it led to the obvious question you can call me nosy it's the question that i'm sure all of you would have asked what was diana really like the most famous person in the world at the time yeah and she was i welcomed her to saint tropez when when she came onto the jetty off um, a tender one of the the boats that go, went from the from the the yacht um to bring the uh, the passengers uh, to shore you know and uh she was an exceptional lady, and and I spoke to um, her ex butler Paul Burrell in depth about this, you know, and um, and obviously the boys were there as well, Harry and, and William, and she was one of those people, you know, Chris, that you, you meet from time to time, who, who's just has that real honest, um, vulnerable personality, but but with a a, a wild child. Mm-hmm. or a free spirit um, inside there and you could just feel the vibration coming from her she was an incredible lady and loved her boys she had time for everybody from the person that cleaned up to to the chefs to everybody she met she said hello she um, she had time for everybody and, and she was an incredible woman can I ask, Lena, I, I appreciate you. you're a professional, for goodness sake. Your job is to protect these people, not to analyse them. But w- was she happy? Did, do you remember her? Did you feel a warmth? Did you feel a genuine kind of contentment within her? Yeah, well, I spoke to her most days on the beach, and, and I talk about you know, our conversations and things in the book, but she was unhappy about the paparazzi. That yeah. was that was the, the main thing. She was She was... She was happy that she was going to live in the in the states, and, and we spoke about that. She was unhappy that she was having to leave her boys; uh, she wasn't allowed to take them. But, you know, of course, we can understand that. Um, but it was interesting that this woman that loved those children so much was prepared to move out of the country to get the media and the paparazzi off her back. The, the way they treated her was absolutely terrible. And, and, and from that trip, Chris, it's very rare I watch the news or I read newspapers. It, I just saw it, the, the worst it could be. And I was like, this is just too much. I'm looking at your face right now, Sono, and, and you're kind of recoiling when you hear a man like that to say that from his experience, from speaking to Princess Diana, from seeing it firsthand, that he doesn't now watch the news or read the newspapers because he's that disgusted. I think you kind of think for people who work in the paparazzi, and I get that it's their livelihood, and so there's a certain desperation perhaps that comes with it, but how do you get to that point where you're sort of really kind of ruining people's lives? I mean, even just away from Princess Diana, was it like last week where Blake Lively had to put out photographs of her pregnancy, which 
that should be a personal thing just to say so that she could sort of go to the beach yeah. without the paparazzi bothering her. Well, it's interesting because this next, uh, I want to get to this next clip because uh, Lee's protected, as I said earlier, a raft of famous people, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, Sylvester Stallone, Pelly, and I wanted to find out how did protecting Dory and Princess Diana compare to that? And it leads here. If you think that was sad, wait until you hear Lee's startling revelation in his next answer that, that truly... It's, it's a galling one, it truly is. I mean, I've, I've protected people all over the world, like you said, Chris, from war zones to all sorts of things. You, you just would not believe. Uh, I've worked in, you know, I've done a lot of work in Saudi Arabia um, with, with the military there, and, and I've, I've seen pretty much anything you could see in the close protection world, in the bodyguard world, but that time with the princess, I mean, you know, I was working for, you know, Mohammed Al-Fayed, billionaire, you know, we, that money was not an issue for anything. He looked after his protection team so well. And then the princess came along with the princes, uh, which which was not a big deal, to be quite honest, because we used to having big names there. And as a close protection operator, I, you cannot have opinions on... If you want to be one of the top ones in the world, you cannot have an opinion on the people you're looking after. We're there to look after them. That's it, full stop. Mm. So you can't get emotionally attached to them because you can't do your job correctly. So it, with it being the princess or the princes, if it had been somebody else, we'd have done our, our protocols would have been exactly the same and we would have given them the same level of protection. But with the princess came all the paparazzi and they are very aggressive. Um, and there's a picture of the princess and me on a boat and these things were selling for a million euros, some of them, then. So you wow. can see, you know, for these paps to get the picture, they will go to any lengths to do it. And and then they would make a story up, of course, about it. And then they would Photoshop the, the, the pictures and all sorts were go was going on at that time. And they would not give her a break. And it's interesting that uh, she used to go out and pose for pictures. And we all arranged it. And we knew if the paparazzi got their photographs, they would go away, leave us alone, so the children could play in the sea, we'd get all the toys out, and, and we'd have it. And she did this for that, and the headlines in the paper was Princess Diana posing for pictures, loading it up, she loves this. And she wasn't doing it for that, but she was prepared to go through that so her children and, and Mr. Fayed's children could have some space to enjoy the holiday. And every, everything she did... The press, particularly in the UK, just turned against her. And why was that when she was such a lovely woman? I just mm. don't get that. It's interesting listening to that. Perhaps I am naive, but that, that notion that she had to quote unquote perform like a performing monkey, performing seal to get the paparazzi. There's your picture for goodness sake. Now leave us be. Let the kids be kids and let them roam. Of course, people listening to this will say, well, that, that's what happens when you marry a prince, that, you know, you almost, in a lot of ways, give up your right to that freedom. But it's that, how sad is that, listening to that, that she had to plaster a smile on in the mornings to take a picture, and then, of course, she was damned if she does, damned if she didn't. But I, I also think that the public are the ones that devour it. Yeah. If there's no... Desire. If, if, if there's no need for it, if there's no appetite for mm. it, then the paparazzi industry dies. The fact that it's sustained is because it's so the bloke on the street laps it up. Mm. And that's the sad thing, ultimately the very sad thing about our society, I think. Yeah, it is.
It is, right. We've heard his recollections of Princess Diana. We've actually heard as well the great length that she would go to to give the paparazzi what they wanted in order to protect not just William and Harry, but of course Dory's children as well. Wasn't just Princess Diana who he did protect, did Lee. He would, as I've said earlier, Sly Stallone, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman. Said that he told a funny story about Tom Cruise actually, we don't have time for now, in which he said he was actually quite a diminutive guy, Tom mm. Cruise, and all of these protection officers were all like six foot four, six foot five. Yeah. He said that he was a bit quiet in and around those guys. He maybe felt a bit inferior to them, but he did tell and I've got to get to this a wonderful tale because well it is Lee's business huge level of non-disclosure of, clo- of course all of that client trust as well but I wanted to know if there were any funny experiences that he felt comfortable to share with me he went straight for Jean-Claude Van Damme <laughs> take a listen looked after Jean-Claude Van Damme he come to see the fireheads regularly and I kind of knew you know what what he needed and his needs although he was very good when he was with us he, he hardly spoke um, and we were all quite big guys he's a very very small chap and uh, so we didn't have any problems with him whatsoever but I knew from people who looked after him he's quite needy <laughs> so I was asked to to look after him on a, on a very short notice uh, contract uh, I had a couple of days to put this together so he was doing a fly on the wall documentary in England and uh, I was asked at the last minute to put a team together, which was very short notice. So I I put one of my friends there to look after him, who's a great close protection operator, but he's not a very good organiser. I put a guy to look after him, to organise him, and then, and, and then I put a team on. And um, the guy who was organising this, uh, this whole show, I, I said, send me the itinerary. And I told him that he won't go there, he won't go there. He won't go on that helicopter. It's not a twin-engine helicopter. And he's going, Lee, how do you know all this? I said, I'm telling you, he's a superstar. He's not going to go from, from this appointment to that appointment. He, he needs to go and have a shower. Uh, his addiction is massively reported, so I'm not saying anything out of turn yeah. here. I'm just I'm giving advice to this guy. So he, he's saying, no, he will do it. And I'm saying, John, I'm telling you, he will not do this. Anyway, so I went with the flow. Anyway, he was cancelling things and everyone was getting upset. And then the guy I put on to, to look after him, I got a phone call from the guy that I sent to look after the bodyguard. He's saying, Lee, Rock's going to kill him. I don't know what to do. I said, where is he? He said, he's going up to his hotel room. He's had enough. He's going he's, he's gonna to beat him. And I went, stop him now. Stop. So he stopped. I said, get him on the phone. And I said, I said, mate, if you go in that room and kill him, we're not going to get paid. So, so anyway, I talked him down. I said, come on, don't take yourself so seriously. Just, just hit your professional head on. So I saved the day, and then at the last, there was a last meeting. It was a black tie event in one of the famous places in London, and Mr. Van Dam was there. And I told the guy who was organising it, I said, you've got to give him time to get changed and do his stuff before he goes there. He says, no, we haven't got time. I said, right, okay, I'm, I'm saying nothing else. So uh, Mr. Van Dam goes into this event in a sweaty T-shirt and joggers. <laughs> he walks right up to the guy who would arrange this business opportunity, who was in a black tie, and he says, right, take that off give it me now so in the middle of this thing he took his clothes off give it Van Damme Van Damme sat there in the black tie 
attire of, of, of this guy, and the guy was sat there in a sweaty, wet T-shirt and joggers. Brilliant. And I just looked and went, told you so, mate. <laughs> the moral of that story is give these A-listers time to change. I'm just thinking about, I need your clothes, your, your boots, boots and your motorcycle. <laughs> That's, of course, heartache. But yes, I do like it, Robert. I do indeed like it. But a massive thanks to Lee. Listen, so much more in that interview. His son, he is a, a kickboxing world champion. He actually lives in my neck of the woods. And when talking to him, I said, oh, where are you from, Lee? He says, oh, I'm in Elgin. I said, Elgin, Scotland. Yes, do you know it? I said, do I know it? I live nine miles down the road. <laughs> I'm the so, gossip from Fogger, for goodness <laughs> sake. Exactly. So I'm actually going to meet uh, meet with him over the Christmas period and catch up with him because I'm sure he's got way more stories uh, to tell us, that's for sure. But a big thanks to Lee. He is, of course, and I should also point out, he's got a book. There's a reason I was catching up with him. It's called The Bodyguard. It is the story of the real bodyguard, Lee Sansom, ex-Royal uh, Military Policeman, Martial Arts Champion, expert in close protection, who, of course, would go on to guard the most famous woman in the world, Princess Diana. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 